Hello and welcome to Being Boss, episode number 55, brought to you by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. You guys, we are so excited to have Tara Moore of Playing Big on our show today. We're chatting with her about everything from your inner critic to your inner mentor to how to redefine fear. And it's interesting because there are actually two different types of fear. So this one will be good for you guys to hear. Tara is an expert on women's leadership and well-being. She helps women play bigger in sharing their voices and bringing forward their ideas in work and in life, which is what being boss is all about. Uh, Tara is the creator of the Playing Big Leadership Program for Women, which we'll be linking to in our show notes, and it has now has more than a thousand graduates from around the world. Her book, Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead, was named a Best Book of the Year by Apple's iBooks, and it's now in paperback. We've got a copy ourselves. You guys will have to check it out. It's good. <laughs> Tara is a Coaches Training Institute certified coach with an MBA from Stanford University and an undergraduate degree in English literature from Yale, so she's super smart. Anyway, um, stay tuned. You guys will not want to miss this episode. Get your business together. Get yourself into what you do and see it through. Being boss is hard. Blending work and life is messy. Making a dream job of your own isn't easy. But getting paid for it, becoming known for it, and finding purpose in it is so doable. If you do the work. Being Boss is a podcast for creative entrepreneurs brought to you by Emily Thompson and Kathleen Shannon. Check out our archives at lovebeingboss.com. So Emily and I recently hired a new CPA for our businesses. She's fantastic. She specializes in creative entrepreneurs, which is really refreshing because um, a lot of times accountants just don't really know how to handle our businesses. Um, But one of the things that she's really excited about for us is that we are so organized with delivering our financials by using FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. FreshBooks makes it super easy to create reports and to share those with your accountant. So it's funny because as I was trying to get this stuff together, um, I could not figure out how to add my accountant to FreshBooks. So I gave them a quick call. They answered immediately. It was a real person talking to me from the get-go. And I asked them, hey, how do I add an accountant? And they quickly just walked me through the website and didn't make me feel like a total idiot for uh, missing what was very obvious. So they're so user-friendly. It's so easy to use FreshBooks. But if you ever have a problem, you can call their rock star support team and they will help you out immediately. So stay on top of your business with a clear picture of its financial health, hire a CPA too, and try FreshBooks for free today. Go to freshbooks.com slash being boss and enter being boss in the how did you hear about us section. First off, I have to tell you that our Being Boss listeners are already such fans of yours and I have literally had friends send me iPhone photos of your book, like passages from your book. And they're like, Oh my gosh, you have to read this if you haven't already. So amazing. That's so touching to hear. It was fun to sharing that. Of course. It was fun to finally, finally dig in. And then to get to talk to you is I I love my job (laughs) (laughs) as it should be. Yeah. So obviously your book is called playing big and Tara, can you just give us a, a quick 
what does it mean to play big? If you can just kind of wrap it up in a nutshell. Well, my favorite short definition and the one that I personally hold in my, in my heart is that playing big is being more loyal to your dreams than to your fears. And that definition showed up for me because in my own life, I got to a point, um, actually right as I was coming up on my 30th birthday, when I was feeling more and more disillusioned with my job and being more honest with myself that I had really turned my back on what I really wanted to be doing in my career. And it was a, a very pivotal moment for me when I realized like, wow, I have put my allegiance with my fears instead of with my dreams. And just making that shift was the beginning of playing much bigger for me. I love it. Obviously. Like that's, and it's so huge. So one of the things that you talk a lot about in your book is the inner critic. And I think a lot of us are already super familiar with that inner dialogue that can be kind of a gremlin, as Brene Brown calls it, that often takes us to a place of fear and shame. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about the inner critic? But then I want to quickly jump to the inner mentor because that part blew my mind. Mm. Yeah. So, and you're right. We are more familiar with the inner critic than we are with the inner mentor. But we're familiar, but I think we, most of us are lacking what I think of as inner critic 101, like basic knowledge. And I always think back to my high school education where I was literally taught how to balance a check and, you know, then I went to get driving less, whatever. But like, this very fundamental thing of what are these voices in our heads and how do we deal with them? We don't get 101 training on that. So we're familiar with it, but in a way, we're really not familiar with what it is and how to deal with it. Uh, So the inner critic is that voice in our heads that says harsh and mean and untrue things um, about ourselves to us, but they feel really true and they sound true to us in the moment. And I think anytime you hear a voice in your head that's saying to you, talking to you in a way that you wouldn't intend to talk to someone you really loved and wanted to support, you're hearing your inner critic. And what a lot of us don't know is that we're all hardwired to have an inner critic. So we don't have to go looking for like what happened in my childhood that made me feel self-doubting or is this because that one professor, those things can contribute and they can affect the particular form our inner critic takes, but everybody has got that voice of self-doubt. And the reason is that we've all also got an instinct to stay safe, to stay in our comfort zone, to never risk criticism or failure or harm, and that safety instinct that doesn't care how fulfilled we are or how happy we are, it just wants things to stay familiar and safe, that safety instinct is always trying to get us to live by its priorities and its rules. And so if you say, I think I want to launch that business, or I think I want to reach out to that person that I'd love to have as a client, or I think I want to um, share my work in a new medium or a new way. It's the safety instincts, like mm, if that could lead to any ouchy moments, let's not do it. But it can't just say that to you because you would not, you would not be persuaded by that. And so instead, the safety instinct uses a more sophisticated strategy, 
and it puts on this costume and this gets dressed up in this vehicle that's the inner critic. So instead of saying to you, let's just stay on the couch instead of launching that new business, like it'll be more safe to just watch more reality TV over here with our snacks. (laughs) Instead of saying that, because you wouldn't, you know, you'd be like, but I think it could be fun and lucrative and wonderful to start my own business. So instead of saying that, it says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not an expert in that. You would need 10 more years of experience. You know, you're not good at the money part or whatever your particular inner critic lines are. And that's much more intimidating to us. So anytime we're on our playing big edges, we're going to hear from the inner critic. And it, it doesn't mean we're off track. It usually is an indication that we are taking an important step out of our current comfort zone. Emily, do you have anything to add? No, I'm just I'm kind of just soaking it soaking in. Soaking it up. <laughs> I, I I need to hear this today. Um, I I liked what you said. I was reading through reading through some of your book, and you mentioned something about how the inner critic is is mostly concerned with things that are like associated with masculinity, and you just brought it up in terms of like. Um, you know, worrying that you're not going to have enough money to do it, you're not going to be able to manage it, and those sorts of things. And I thought that that was such a, such an interesting and profound like realization about how like our our audience is mostly women, um, and how like the, this is a conversation Kathleen and I have with our like coaching clients and our our design clients constantly. Like they're so worried about about the money side of things or about managing or about, you know, what do I do when it comes to marketing and really the sort of masculine pieces of the puzzle that's involved with doing business. Um, and I think that's sad. And I'm, but I'm also so glad that you, you recognize that and brought that up in terms of, you know, this inner critic is, is just, I don't know, bullying us in a way that uh, we're almost conditioned to be bullied. Yeah, that's such a good point. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. So people are always, you know, if I'm teaching about the inner critic or lecturing about it, a really common question, because I'm usually talking to groups of women, is, well, do men have this too? And it's interesting because a lot of us assume that women struggle with the inner critic more than men, but there have been a handful of studies done around self-doubt and the research suggests that women don't have more self-doubt than men, but we do have a lot more when it comes to, as you're saying, those things that, and it's not that they're necessarily masculine things, but the things that are associated with masculinity in our culture in a stereotypical way. And so as you're saying, that tends to be financial things. It's also anything quantitative, right? They're like, I'm not good at math, um, negotiation, and then even leadership in, a, in the sort of traditional sense of I'm leading the group, I'm leading the team. Um, And then on the opposite side, there's some research that suggests that men feel more self-conscious about things that are associated with femininity in our culture, whether that's like, well, I, I don't know, you know, what, what, how do you make things look nice? I don't know anything about that. Or I don't, that communication stuff, I'm not good at that. Um, So those stereotypes, of course, affect us. And the reason it's so good to realize that is because most of us walk around truly thinking like, no, I individually am just not a good negotiator. And we're not seeing that that's part of a pattern. And it's it's really not the truth. 
One of the things that I love that you highlighted in the book was an actual conversation with your inner critic. So this is maybe two separate parts. And I feel kind of like a dork being like, I love that thing that you wrote, Tara, in your book that we're talking about. (laughs) That's your inner critic right now, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, obviously, you know, go get the book and read it. But one of the things that I love that you do in it is you talk about kind of not just telling the inner critic to shut up, but in a way, almost making friends with it and having more of a dialogue with it. So I wanted to share how this came up for me recently. And I have a very good established creative career. I'm totally living the dream. I have a podcast. I have a branding agency. Um, But I recently had the dream of becoming a makeup artist and my inner critic, and not that like, and it's not a real dream, but I'm I'm excited about it. And so my inner critic piped in and was like, "What the hell are you thinking? Like a makeup artist?" And so I took a cue from your book, and instead of just listening to that inner critic, I was like, "Let's have a dialogue." And one of the things that you mentioned is, "What would it take to make that happen?" What would it mean to keep the things that are important to me, like security in my job and security in my expertise and finances, but also explore this makeup thing? So it was really, it was so cool to see that it doesn't have to be black or white, but there are a lot of gray areas. And without my inner critic, I wouldn't have been able to have that conversation, or at least without the tools that you kind of gave me Mm. in your book. Um, so I just wanted to share that as like a real life example of what that inner critic might look like and what that actual conversation might look like. Yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I also have a chapter in the book on callings and I really believe that we all get lots of callings over the course of a lifetime. We get many callings at the same time. Um, and that sometimes our callings are a calling isn't just a big epic, like, this is what I'm going to do for the next 20 years, but it could be, oh, I feel a calling to um, do this particular project or fix this little need, you know, that I see in my um, community or um, at my school or, you know, among this group of friends or whatever. And so I would say, you know, that, that sense of, I have this vision now about being a makeup artist and I feel really called to that, that would fit for me as a calling that, with our callings, we always want to pay attention to, and it sounds like this is just what you did, like, what's the practical, no big deal way that I can start living that in some way right now, and not get caught up in how do I overhaul my life to do it in the most huge way I can imagine, because that can actually be a way that fear would love for us to think about it because then it becomes <laughs> right. impossible, right? Versus if you're saying, okay, I feel calling to be a makeup artist. What can I do two or three hours a week right now that has me living that calling, not preparing to live it? Can I do free makeup things for my friends? Can I just go to this makeup, you know, uh, artist training, like really start living it? Lots of YouTube tutorials. Yes. (laughs) I saw something on your blog about that. (laughs) It has been like, and and Sephora is getting a lot of my money. So that's also something else that I realized is that I can love makeup and it can be more of a hobby and I can play with experimenting experimenting with it on myself. But again, like none of that would have happened without, you know, kind of hearing that calling, hearing my inner critic, having a fair dialogue with my inner critic and then moving forward. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, let's move on to the inner mentor because, and I promise we're not going to go through like chapter by chapter and have you explain <laughs> your book to us, but the inner mentor, like if there's anything that I want our audience to hear about, it's about the inner mentor. Um, so would you mind sharing a little yeah. bit about yeah. that with us? So this is... I would agree. I always feel like if there's one thing people take away, it's please, please, please go take the 20 minutes to do the inner mentor visualization. It's, um, you won't be sorry. Um, so I started using this tool in my coaching practice years ago and I would see again and again, it was, it was truly life changing for people and pretty much for everyone who I did it with. And I have never, um, come across anything else that allows us to so almost instantly get answers to our biggest dilemmas, to get unstuck where we're stuck, um, to move from fear to a place of um, contentment and um, and seeing a way forward. So it's just it's just such a powerful thing. And the idea with the inner mentor is that you are meeting your inner mentor who is a vision and a version of yourself um, 20 or 30 years out into the future. But if I were to say, you know, hey, Kathleen, um, what, what do you want to be in 20 years? Like that wouldn't be your inner mentor because that would be your, some combination of, you know, what your conscious mind is wanting and your plans and your fears and, you know, all of that. And you'd probably be thinking about how you're aging or whatever comes up, right? (laughs) What will be going on in your relationships? So the reason we do a visualization and a meditation is because it really does get us out of all that more surface level thinking so that it's not like we're making up our inner mentor, but really something is being revealed to us from inside of us and we discover it. And so when people do this visualization, the figure that they meet, it's not just like, oh, here's who I'm literally going to be in 20 years, da, 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 da. It's more like you're meeting your inner wise woman. So it's sort of your older self. It's sort of your authentic self. It's sort of your soul self. Um, and People are often really kind of surprised by some of the elements of her and her life. There's a lot of symbolism usually in what people see. There's a lot of mystery. Um, Some things that they understand right away, some things that reveal themselves more over time in terms of the meaning of them. But what people always find is this figure that is very calm, loving, and who they can really get a sense of and then consult with about whatever's coming up in their life and a very literal level. So like, Oh, I have to write this sticky email to a client. I need to fire. Hmm. How would my inner mentor write it? Or, um, I have to decide, you know, if I'm gonna continue this product line in my business, like, let's, let me approach that as my inner mentor would. And then on the personal level, too, like, I need to have a difficult conversation with my mother-in-law. How would she approach that? So it's really powerful. I love it so much. 
I love this because I feel like we're constantly, and especially lately, this trend of needing to have a mentor comes up all the time. People are searching for their mentor or hiring consultants or experts to tell them what to do. And I do think that those things have their place. But whenever it comes to the direction that you're taking your life and your career based on your own inner values, it is so important to have a place within yourself that you can go to to find those answers and something that you can really trust. So I love that you can look at yourself just 20 to 30 years from now and and trust that. I couldn't agree more. And whenever I'm speaking I and I'm talking about this, I say, you know, how many of you in the audience have been told you need to find great women mentors? And every hand goes up. And then I ask, how many of you feel like you found those mentors you were supposed to be able to find? And like two hands will go up. Um, because it just doesn't work for people. And I would say even more so for women pursuing an entrepreneurial career where you know, 20 years ago, the people you'd be looking to as mentors who presumably are maybe further along than you had totally different career options, um, charted a different path, like you're creating your own individual path. Uh, And I don't think I ended up, this didn't end up getting included in the book, I don't think. But um, one of the things that shocked me, I was looking into the history of mentorship um, because I always, like you, I just, the concept has always kind of, "Mm, that doesn't feel real or right the way it's prescribed to women for their careers. So anyway, it turns out. I always think of Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So mentor, the word mentor is, it's the, the very first use of the word mentor is in Homer's Odyssey. And, and the character called mentor is, when Odysseus goes away on his journey, mentor comes in to be like a substitute father figure for his son. And then for like thousands of years of literature, mentor means a male father figure for a young male. And then like in the 1970s, someone's like, oh, and we have mentors at work. Like, let's use this term in the business world. And then in the late 1970s, some feminists are like, yeah, but it's not just like male relationships, it's female relationships too. So the idea that this is how an older and younger woman should relate and support each other is really like a made up idea that's not grounded in any sense of how women actually relate to each other. Um, And I don't think we we really, I do think relate in more in circles and in mutual exchanges where we're sharing different things with each other. It's not that like hierarchical son, let me guide you kind of thing. So true. And even um, in our own coaching practices and even in our Facebook group for being boss, I feel like, and in even this podcast, like we're in it with you guys, you know, we're, we're all in it together. We're all figuring out together. And I feel like the best discussions are the kind that are in the round and where we're all having a voice and having a place and questioning each other. Um, I feel questioned every day, even, even as an expert, um, I'm constantly reevaluating things. So even being in a position where you've been a mentor can be kind of uncomfortable too, not just being the mentee. So yes, if, if you think your job as a mentor is to know all the answers, which is how it's kind of prescribed and really a, a great mentor is more like a coach who's asking right, the right questions and helping that person find their own inner wisdom. So, but, but the inner mentor is like this fail proof available around the clock way to get that. And of course, you know, there's lots of great 
great roles that the outer colleagues and peer mentors in our lives can play, but I don't think that they can give us the big, the big answers and help us find our own highest way of moving through the world. That is what the inner mentor gives us. Hey bosses, did you have a case of FOMO? That stands for the fear of missing out. When you saw all the being boss magic go down for our being boss vacation in New Orleans, they're not friends because we are planning another boss vacation this spring in Miami. Miami. <laughs> so it was really hard to figure out what location to go to, but we've never been to Miami. And the reason why we do these boss vacations is to cultivate our creative pack, see different parts of the world, get some face time with each other, connect with each other and live the boss life. So to learn more details about this boss vacation, just go to lovebeingboss.com slash Miami. We hope to see you there. Okay, we have some listener questions for oh, you. Oh, good. But first, I, wanna, I just want to touch on one more thing okay. that blew my mind. Um, and it's the two types of fear. And I don't, I'm afraid that I will butcher the pronunciation. <laughs> you're not alone in that. You people. will. Yeah. No, you're not alone in butcher. Well, I actually pronounced it wrong for like the first two years I was talking about it because I had only read it and I thought I was pronouncing it right, but I had like read what syllables should be stressed wrong. So sometimes I still pronounce it wrong. But yes, I'm <laughs> happy to take that off your hands. <laughs> be, the, be the first Thank one you. to say the word. And, and this is the excerpt from the book that actually someone had photographed and sent to me because mm. it was just so profound. Mm, that's so that's so lovely to hear. Yeah, so this really, yeah, knocked me like off my feet when I first came across it too. Um, I uh, was reading a book by Rabbi Alan Liu, who is um, a late San Francisco rabbi uh, who write, has some beautiful books on spirituality. And uh, he was, so this particular chapter was about um, the, he was mentioning that in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, there's two different words used for fear. So the first word is pachad. And the, the transliteration for people who want it, it's usually spelled P-A-C-H-A-D. And pachad is the fear of projected things or imagined things. So the things we imagine could happen are projections about what's going to happen. It's always future-oriented, right? Fear uh, this might happen. Um, and since it's what we imagine could happen, it's like, you know, oh my gosh, the plane's going to crash. Oh my gosh, the person is going to scoff when I tell them what my prices are. Um, uh, I'm going to, you know, invite this friend I want to, this person I want to become friends with to lunch and she's not going to want to go, whatever we fear could happen. And that's that kind of often inner critic fueled fear. It tends to be very overreactive, uh, wants us to be extra conservative um, and that's that's the kind of fear most of us are very familiar with. And certainly as coaches, we're trying to help our clients not be run by those kinds of fears. Okay. Then he mentions there's a second word used uh, in some other instances for fear. And that word is yira, uh, Y-I-R-A-H. And yira is used in three different kinds of instances. 
um, in the stories in the Hebrew Bible. One, it's used to describe the feeling that someone has when they are suddenly inhabiting a larger space than they were in before, than they're used to being in. Second, it's the word that's used to describe when someone suddenly comes into possession of more energy than they normally have. And then third, it's the word that's used to describe what people feel when they're in the presence of the divine. So when Moses is at the burning bush, this word is described to you, used to describe how he feels. So when I read that, inhabiting a larger space than we're used to, coming into possession of more energy than we're used to, and in the presence of the divine or the sacred, I was like, oh, (laughs) I experience that with my clients all the time. And I had just had an experience with a client where she had finally kind of gotten to the truth within herself and spoken the truth about making a huge change in her life. And I could really remember as I was reading that feeling of we had, there had just been such a heightened sense in the air on, we were on the phone, but even just in the space of our conversation and kind of fear, but kind of a sense of awe. And, um, and she said, I'm scared after she had said that, she said, I'm so scared. And I had kind of addressed it as regular old fear and knew that didn't feel exactly right. And when I read this, I was like, oh, that's because I was treating it like regular old fear. And it it wasn't, it was this other thing. And so as I lived with that more, I really evolved that as the basis of how I think about fear in my own life and work with people around it, that first we need to know which are we feeling here? And usually when we're playing bigger, when we're sharing our voice, when we're going for calling, we will feel yura. We may also feel some pahad, but we'll feel yura. And there's really nothing to do with yura except know that you're feeling it and savor it. Um, and then with pahad, it's very different because that's that overreactive, I'm imagining this and that could happen. And we don't want to be led by that. So that's where we like want to use all those kind of practices we have for not being directed by our fear and moving past it. And there's a lot of those in the book. But sometimes it's just yura. And it, yura it feels wonderful in some sense because it has that exhilaration. But it also feels uncomfortable because it's, again, it's not the, it's certainly not the sitting on the couch with our snacks and our reality TV cozy state of being. It's it's jittery, it um, feels a bit vulnerable. Um, so sometimes we do want to find a way out of it, but we really can just breathe breathe through it and enjoy what it is and what it's showing us about our path. I have a question about Yura and our capacity for it. So mm. I've experienced this a lot in my life, and I always ask the successful women around me, how do you grow your capacity for that kind of energy. So even I think as much as as all of us want to make more money, if tomorrow I landed a client who is like, I want to give you a hundred thousand dollars for what you're doing, I would, I would feel overwhelmed and a ton of pressure. And whenever I think of it, almost like electricity, right? Whenever I moved into my old house, I had to update 
the circuit because my house was so old that it couldn't handle all the electricity that modern technology has given us, right? So, like, sometimes I feel that way whenever I'm experiencing Eura, like, almost like I'm about to short circuit, that I don't ha- quite have the capacity to to handle the success, for a lack of better words. So, do you have any tools for really just growing your capacity for holding that space? Hmm. Well, I have a couple thoughts. So one is there's a difference between thinking it's going to be too much electricity and it actually being too much electricity. True. So (laughs) I would say, you know, it might be interesting to test out not assessing that in advance, but sort of saying, well, if life is bringing me the opportunity or if life is bringing me the aspiration or calling towards this, I'm going to walk forward and I will deal with the too much electricity problem when it's actually happening. Um, You know, and I'm just thinking about times in my life where I felt like that's way too big for now. I'm not ready for that now. I'm definitely not ready for that now. And then like I, I decided that that was my inner critic and I did it anyway and it was great, you know. So that's one piece. Like maybe writing a book. Did you feel that way before you wrote a book? I felt, I didn't feel that way with the book, but I felt that way like the first time I was on national television. Um, I felt that way when the book was coming out and um, and I, my editor um, without, you know, really telling me, like pitched the New York Times. And so then I just got the email that was like, great, you're writing an op-ed for the Sunday New York Times about women's relationship to praise and criticism. And I was like, no, I am not. (laughs) (laughs) And actually my first thought was like, oh no, this is horrible because I'm going to have to spend all this time writing this op-ed so that I, because I can't say no, because that would be, my publisher would then feel like I wasn't, you know, supporting the book, but I know it's not going to be publishable because my writing isn't good enough for that. And people who write for the New York Times op-ed sound very grown up when they write and you don't, your writing doesn't sound that way, Tara. And now I'm going to have to waste all this time when I really need to be doing book launch stuff, writing this piece that I know is not going to get and and I, I actually, even though I had just finished writing the Playing Big Book, I thought that for five days before the first time I had the thought, like, maybe that is partially my inner critic talking. Mm. Um, so that's, I mean, about our inner critic, it really is a, it's a lifelong practice to get more and more savvy about discerning when that's what you're hearing. It's not easy, you know, even if it would be obvious to an outsider, like I was convinced, you know, about that. Um, and then, and so, so for me, the practice was like, I just, then it was like, well, if that might be my inner critic, I guess that might not be true. And I have to write this anyway, even while I'm sure that this thing is going to be horrible and not be published. And so I, you know, I worked on it for a couple weeks like that. And, um, and guess what, you know, it was published and then guess what? It was the number one most emailed article of the week in the New York times. Like, Um, so, and that was, I mean, that was just such a like, oh my gosh, like our inner critics are so convincing and they really are so off base. So I was sometimes tricky. Yeah. Oh, totally trick. Yeah. Total trickster. So, so, you know, is it too much electricity or does it feel like it might be? Those are two really different things. Um, but then the other thing I would say is you're kind of reminding me of, um, 
this, you know, and I wrote a piece years ago called 10 Rules for Brilliant Women, an art, a Huffington Post article that went really viral and, um, and, and it's, people can still find it. There's a page for it on my, on my main navigation on my we'll site. We'll be sure to link to it. In okay. Um, but one of the rules is about restoration of yourself and that if you, I, I think of it as a tank where you have a certain amount of juice for taking risks and that if the tank starts to get low because you've been taking a lot of risks and playing big and doing things that scare you, then you need to refill the tank. And, you know, I, I think sometimes like people would laugh if they, I mean, it's a little different now than we have a, that we have a kid, but like if people saw my husband and I at the end of the day, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like we go and do all these things that really challenge ourselves through our work day. But then we become like completely, you know, sedentary and comatose and we like hunker down in our house and like eat the food that's cozy to us and like watch the shows that are cozy to us and like really refill the tank with things that are the opposite of that energy we used all day. So I think that is important too, because we do only have a certain amount of capacity. You know, we can't go around 24 seven pushing our edges. Good point. And I think that that what I'm getting from this is I just need to be more, (laughs) sorry, now I'm having you coach me, but like just really (laughs) being discerning about the opportunities that we take on. And I think that as you're playing big, you get asked to do more and more things Um, And so sometimes you have to say no, not because you're afraid, but because you only have so much capacity. So you have to figure out what's important to you. Definitely. Well, let's go ahead and move on to some of the questions from our listeners. Yeah. Make sure to get to those. Emily, do you want to read a couple of those? I will. All right. So the first one is from Christy Daniels, and it is, um, we'll see, she says, loved her book and eager to hear the interview. I seem to oscillate between playing big and playing small. And from the book, I recall that she's also an introvert. Has she seen this with the women she's worked with or experienced it herself? Are there rhythms at play when learning to play big? Does she ever find herself going through a wave of contraction, then expansion when it comes to playing big? Hmm. It's a great question and very beautifully put. Um, So I would say that the way I think of it is more like, you know, that playing big is it's a journey we're on in our, through our whole lives. We don't arrive, um, at some point of like, now I'm playing big. So I'm done with that part. It's like, well, what's my next playing big edge? And, oh, now that I'm playing big in this way, I kind of, am looking over here and seeing I'm really playing small over here. And there's also so many different aspects to playing big. And I'll find, um, when women take the playing big course, like they'll often say to me, Oh, when I took it, you know, I was, it was like a huge awakening about my inner critic and about um, being hooked on praise. And, and I didn't even understand, you know, what this whole like callings part was. And I didn't really connect to this part. And then, you know, a year, a year later, cause then they have the materials for a long time. Then they'll say a year later, I listened to everything again and I got that like, and then this part stood out. So it's kind of one of those things. Um, 
And, you know, I don't know about the arcs and the waves questions. It's interesting for me because I would say from, you know, about 2008 until I started my, when I, which is when I left my, when I started kind of what I'm doing now. And then I left my job in 2009 from then till now has been like a huge arc of coming into my own in the world and really like claiming my voice. And now I have a kid and I have a two year old and, um, and I feel like I, the hunger to like be my authentic self in the world, like I really feel I fulfilled that. And so I can feel my energy shifting. I wouldn't call it a playing small, but it's more about putting down roots versus branching out, um, which I'm, I'm very influenced by my friend and colleague, Leanne Raymond. I recommend everyone check out her site um, who uses those metaphors of is it a time of planting seeds or putting down roots or bearing fruit and spreading out branches so those metaphors from her like have really been resonating with me Um, but I think the last thing I'll just say is I think that that feeling of well I'm playing yeah I go I play bigger but then I play small that for me is just like it's the human struggle of there's all there's always still areas where we're in our fear or we're in our old narratives and we can't be stretching into that playing bigger every moment of every day all the time. So true. I also have a two-year-old and I feel like I'm drawn to planting those roots, right? But at the same time, my playing big that had happened, you know, the, the seeds I had planted before I had the baby were also sprouting at the same time. So it was just a huge growth all over the place that definitely stretched me every bit way. And I'm sure that you've experienced that as well. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. Similar timing where a lot of what's in my career now is fuel. It has been fueled and created by the, what I was doing pre baby which is kind of a nice way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And so that's one thing I was thinking whenever you were, you know, answering that question is I think that sometimes whenever we play big and Emily and I talk about this all the time, we're setting ourselves up so that whenever we need a time of rest, our, our businesses are still playing big for us. Totally. Um, Yeah. Which is, which is, I think for us, a big part of what it means to play big. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is kind of coming up around the edges of what we're talking about, that a lot of times when women hear the term playing big, they're like, oh, God, is that that sounds exhausting. And that sounds stressful. And that sounds like I'm gonna have to push myself harder. So I want to kind of remind everyone that that's not the playing big we're talking about. And that my experience is actually working with women and using these kinds of tools and talking about playing big as, you know, it's about being more of your authentic self. It's actually about unblocking your gifts and your voice because when we're playing small, it's, it's not just like, well, we're not playing big. It's like, no, we're actually fighting against ourselves. We want to say something, but the inner critic has an argument why we shouldn't say it. We have an impulse to create something, but then we rationalize it away. So we're in a tug of war with ourselves. And that is more tiring than the natural flow 
of your creativity that you can have when you get some tools to manage fear and the inner critic and you can start living with your inner mentor's guidance. So think of playing big as a more natural flow than playing small. It's not like about pushing harder at all. Yeah, I think one of the things that you mentioned um, in the book is it's not about pushing, but about letting your vision pull you, which I thought was really beautifully said. Emily here to talk about running an efficient online business. Doing business online is all about solutions, solutions for billing, time tracking, project management, scheduling, and each solution is only as good as the integrations that make your whole business work in harmony. When our pals at Acuity Scheduling wanted us to share their awesomeness with all of you bosses, one of our first points was how do you integrate? And they surely do not disappoint. Whether you're a FreshBooks user or married to Google, send emails with MailChimp, AWeber, Constant Contact, or Mad Mimi, or maybe you use Zapier to make all the things work just the way you want them to, Acuity Scheduling makes sure your meetings are in line with how you do business online by integrating with all of these and more. Schedule clients without sacrificing your soul. Sign up for your free 60-day trial of scheduling sanity at acuityscheduling.com slash beingboss. Now let's get back at it. All right, so this kind of leads into another question from Sophie Davies, who I actually think shares a co-working space with you. It's just a small Oh, yeah, Sophie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. So Sophie asks, what factors contribute to a woman's lack of confidence and self-worth when trying to get back into the workforce, even after a successful career prior to kids? So what causes them to value themselves so differently that playing big almost has to become a mantra? <laughs> yeah. And did she say specifically coming back into the workforce after kids? I didn't catch that. Yeah, she yeah. said um it, it was uh yeah, she says like yes, definitely coming back into the workforce um after kids. Yeah. yeah. But it, but especially if your career was successful prior to having kids, like coming back into the workforce after having kids too can still feel different even if you were already successful. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think so there are lots of there's real external factors, of course, that affect how we feel about ourselves and the fact that caregiving, you know, and the daily grind of like diaper changing and oatmeal making, (laughs) not wiping, you know, is not exactly like celebrated by our culture. And no one's saying like, wow, it takes such skill to do that, you know, with as an art like you did. And, you know, like we're getting messages from our culture that that's sort of invisible. It's not that important. It's not well paid work. So that affects, of course, how we feel about ourselves. And then I know for a lot of women, the career that they had, not for all, but for a lot, the career that they had first before they had kids um, often was like a career other people thought was prestigious or it was a corporate career that never really felt meaningful to them. So that can be, it means that that background, it might not actually like root people in a sense of confidence about themselves because it, it, um, it, it's just not that connected to who they, who they are. Um, and then again, though, I think most of the inner critic stuff we have, the reason for it is that we're human and we're therefore afraid of failure, criticism, 
um, in Brene's words, emotional exposure and putting ourselves out there in the workforce to go back in involves risking all those things. And so the inner critic would prefer to like shut us down enough that we don't risk them. Um, and this is a place where inner mentor can be really valuable because she's going to give you that individualized, customized vision that you can really feel um, of how you can move through the job search or the career defining um, for yourself as, as you're going through that transition. Love that inner mentor. She's so, she's so nice. Did you, did you guys get to do your, did you do it yet? I did. And my inner mentor lives in like this super modern, um, house in the woods. She's wearing a caftan and she's having like, she's drinking wine with her kids mm. and talking to them about real things. And, um, yeah. And she's like well-traveled and yeah. Oh, that sounds really rich and beautiful. It is totally beautiful. So, okay, this is actually a question I had. Sorry, we're going back to my questions. <laughs> what do you do if you're feeling impatient for your inner mentor? Like, I want to be her now. Like, what do you I suggest? Think that's great. I mean, that's what happened to me. I, I, um, I was like that woman. Yep. I, you know, I saw her and I was like. Oh yeah, that would be all the parts of myself I'm completely repressing. Like, you know, she's living out. And I would say for the first about 9 months or so to a year after I did the visualization, I mean, every decision I made in my life was well, which choice would bring me closer to her? Like even you're talking about the filter for projects now that you're, you know, as the podcast grows and everything. So which projects would your inner mentor do? Um, but I would, you know, so, I mean, that year, and it was a, as granular for me as, like, she had long hair, I'm growing my hair out long. She wears lavender, I'm buying some lavender clothes. Um, you know, her house looks like this. Every time I see a piece of furniture that I feel like she'd have in her house, you know, I'm switching it over. Um that's how I lived. And that's how I changed my life. Like that is how I went from, um, you know, someone who wrote white papers and wore tweed blazers and had short hair to someone who wore silky lavender blouses and wrote a blog and had long hair. <laughs> so, and you know, I recently yeah. had a moment where I responded to an outer critic in a very harsh way and it's not the person I want to be and if I had just stopped to check in with my inner mentor mm. she would have said Kathleen shut your email like mm. don't just don't reply and instead I was playing small whenever I responded so like in very real ways from how we dress to how we um I, I think just listening to our inner mentor makes us less reactionary good and bad to opportunities to critics that are you know external critics that are very real um so totally. love that yeah all right, one more question from listeners, if you have time. Yeah. Okay. Emily, do you want to read that one? Absolutely. All right, so uh, we have one from Caitlin Horton and Mickey Laura, um, and they both want to know the difference between staying small and playing small when it comes to how we operate our businesses. Mm. Yeah. And is playing big for everyone. Right. So playing big is for everyone, but not the literal big, 
of bigger business, bigger revenue, bigger, you know, audience, whatever. Um, because that's not what everyone's true playing big would look like. So if we go back to playing big is being more loyal to your dreams than your fears. So what are your dreams and what are you feeling called toward and what direction is your inner mentor guiding you to? Um, for a lot of people, some of their most courageous playing big decisions are things that look small to the outside world. And I'll give you an example of um, a woman who took my course and works for like a major Fortune 500 company um, in financial services. And she was in a cohort, a large cohort of like peers who were at her level in the company. And there was one particular coveted promotion that everyone was competing for, basically. And she was offered it. And when she thought about it to herself, she got honest with herself and knew that for her, playing big actually was saying no to this promotion because she, in her current job, she had been given a project. She was leading a team. The project had like a five or six year arc and they were in the middle of it. And she was like, for me, playing big, What's really at my edge is sticking with this project all the way through, sticking around to see the results, continuing to lead my people through this, and having the courage to not do the thing that everyone's expecting me to do. So she turned the promotion down, um, and that was right at the time that she was finishing the Playing Big course. And I thought that was, you know, really interesting and kind of brave and was kind of waiting to see what happened, like, how's that going to go for her? And, um, what was so amazing about it was that in the process of turning it down, she also talked to the leadership of the company, like, Hey, I'm in the middle of this six year thing. And the way we promote people so frequently and take them out of these projects is part of what's hurting our company because nobody's really accountable for the long-term results of what they're working on. So they of course were impressed that she was bringing that up and was willing to look, really look at that. And now, a couple years later, she was moved into an even more senior position than that promotion. She got to see her project through to the end, um, and she went on to this, this other role that she's super excited about. So it's just an example of, you know, the kinds of often what is our playing big isn't what looks big from the outside. And to have a small business that as long as it's at your playing big edge of what you want to be doing, what your dreams are, that's your playing big. Um, but I would look for and be skeptical, you know, if it doesn't feel like there's any fear or stretch or challenging of your inner critic narratives, I'd say like, hmm, you know, what other little dreams or callings are in there that you're maybe rationalizing away? Um, but it could still feel small and be a stretch in other ways in terms of what you're doing or how you're showing up or what you're charging or even what you're saying no to. And I think that's just the best way to stretch. And from what I've taken away from reading your book is just to get really curious, just to ask a ton of questions 
And that way you can find what is your inner critic, what it means for you to play big, what it means for you to play small. And I love everything that you just said, because a lot of our listeners still work, um, quote unquote, day jobs where they're working for someone else, but have a side hustle of creativity that they're working on. And so for them, playing big might not mean, and, and again, the creative entrepreneurship um, lifestyle is is really glamorized, even by our podcast, but it's not always the best way to play big, to quit your job and start your own thing. In fact, that can make you feel really desperate and small at times. So I love that you bring that up as well, you know, using someone who's working a job and, and turning down a promotion as an example. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, like I think that that it's all or nothing, you know, I have to take this big flying jump off a cliff. Mm, I'd always be skeptical of that because it can, really can be a setup um, from the fearful part of us and the inner critic part of us to make it binary like that um, versus that more, there's always an immediate way you can start playing big while you're working your full-time job, living into what you really want to do now. Um, and sometimes we, we avoid that because that's scary and then we create a bigger, more complicated plan because it actually allows us to put the whole thing on hold. All right, I have um, one more kind of more personal question before we share with our listeners how they can find out more about you and your work. I'm, I'm curious, what are you reading lately or even watching that is for fun or more businessy? Um, what, what are you digging lately? Yeah, well, I just finished Gloria Steinem's new book, which is called um, Life on the Road. Um, and it's so funny because my son, for some reason, my son thinks it's me on the cover. So it's also hilarious Aww, because it's around so our house cute. and he's like constantly pointing at Gloria Steinem and being like, mama. And I'm like, that's so great. <laughs> like, I will happily be Gloria Steinem. Uh, my son thinks that, my son thinks that I'm pink, which is <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, but Gloria Steinem's new book, I, I feel like it did not... I mean, I just think it's so extraordinary and I didn't hear a ton about it in the media. So I'm, I'm, I just want to make sure that everyone knows about it. She's such a beautiful writer and she's been literally on the road talking to women about their lives for decades. And this is a book about not only like her most amazing stories from that time, but also about travel and being on the road as sort of a mindset um, that you can you can take both with travel or just in your daily life. Um, it's such an amazing book, so I highly highly recommend that. And you know, in her book, she's she's kind of um, anti mentor. I mean, not necessarily, but relating back to what we were talking about earlier, she really talks about if you want to be heard, you need to hear other people. Yes. So that's a key takeaway I took from that book as well. Yeah, it's, it's really great. I highly recommend it as well. Anyway, okay. So what else? What are you watching? I'm watching <laughs> um, the the new the most recent season of Downton Abbey. <gasps> oh, I never finished it. The, the final season is is pretty great, I have to say. I was watching Downton Abbey and Walking Dead at the same time. Like, so I was really into the two of them a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, Downton Abbey is killing off more people than The Walking Dead. Like, it was just so traumatizing. That was, they had a bad patch there, but then I think they kind of, I don't know, they figured it out. So people are more generally there to stay now and they don't have to keep like weaving mysterious disappearances into the plot. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, it's sweet because it's the last season. And then, um, and then I'm reading, you know, I'm reading a lot of like toddler, you know, I'm reading Maria Montessori's books and things like that. Oh, I should check those out. You should write a blog post about that if you haven't already. About um, toddler books? <laughs> about toddler books. Yeah, because there's, I need a, some there's good certainly recommendations. Are a lot of bad ones. It's, it's shocking. And there are, and that's why I have a hard time, you know, even buying them or picking them up. I'm just like, oh, I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, finally, tell us, and we'll be sure to include links to every place people can find you, but tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you're offering right now or how people can find yeah. out more about you and your work. Well, the big thing is that the paperback of the book just came out, which I'm so excited about. It has a really beautiful new cover and... um it's just like it' a lot easier to move around your life with than the hardback was. So that's the big thing, um, and people can get that. There's a page on my site that links to where it is on the all the retailers, or of course you can go to Amazon or IndieBound or wherever you like to go. And I just have to plug that there are a ton of like journaling exercises. Mm-hmm. Your book is really interactive, but then there are also like key takeaways at the end of every chapter. It is so digestible. So I just wanted to share that. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to, I try and really make everything very practical. So that's, that's all that's there for everyone. And then um, coming up in March, I'm going to be offering the Playing Big course again, which is a six month journey through this process with a group of other women. Um, so that's really fun and exciting. And then in the meantime, um, you know, I, for me, like the heartbeat of what I do is still blogging. Um, and, and so people can come to my site and sign up. You'll get the 10 rules for brilliant women workbook to start for free and then get, um, short blog posts from me on all these kinds of topics regularly. Thank you so much, um, for spending a little bit of time with us and yeah, we appreciate you. you. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you so much. And, um, it's so fabulous what what you both are up to and I'm so happy that people have found you and um, I'm I am quite sure that tons of women's playing big is being supported through what you're both creating um, all the time with this yeah thank you I hope so (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening to being boss find show notes for this episode at lovebeingboss.com Listen to past episodes and subscribe to new episodes on our website, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Did you like this episode? Head on over to our Facebook group by searching Being Boss on Facebook and join in on the conversation with other bosses or share it with a friend. Do the work, be boss, and we'll see you next week. All right. Well, Tara, for, I mean, I'm Tara. I'm it's Thera. okay. It's okay. <laughs> so sorry. It happens. I know people have a, whoever is the regular person. And I know you have a Tara in your life. Yeah. I mean, my sister and business partner is a Tara. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>